0: Well, hello everybody, this is Richard Harris. Uh, I hope you all had just a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday yesterday. Here on the Truth and Liberty uh, show, uh, we are, our staff is off today. Uh, to celebrate uh, the Thanksgiving weekend with their families. So we have a real special treat for you. We're actually going to be playing for you today um, the Citizens Academy that we recently held at Karis Bible College. And this is where we take a couple of hours and we share with our students on the importance of getting involved in civic engagement, both inspirational content and practical how-to Uh, discussion. Uh, This is going to be educational and inspirational for you too, I believe. Uh, I share uh, one of the segments here I teach as well as Tim Barton. So you're going to hear from Tim Barton here as he talks about the historical precedent for Christians becoming involved and and, uh, some important truths that you may have never heard before about the founding of the United States of America. And then also you're going to hear from the manager of our field operations here at Truth and Liberty Coalition, Priscilla Lua, as she shares some practical, information with you about how every believer uh, can get involved and make a difference in their local community. So, sit back and enjoy this special episode of the Truth and Liberty Live Call-In Show. Praise the Lord. Welcome, everybody, to 2023 Citizens Academy here at Karis Bible College. I'm Richard Harris, and uh, I am the executive director of Truth and Liberty Coalition. In case you didn't know that, also uh, newly sort of the uh, honor of being the director of the Practical Government School. So um, this, what we're doing this morning is uh, has become a little bit of a tradition here at Keras. It was an idea that David Barton gave us several years ago. I think this is uh, number four or five uh, of uh, Citizens Academy here at Keras. And I just want to share with you, normally Andrew um, uh, participates in this and, and has one of the main speaking slots, but he unfortunately is, is uh, unavailable today, and so I get the honor of filling in for him, so I'm really excited about that. But Andrew, Andrew's heart for this, guys, is, uh, comes from... Um, the understanding and conviction that christians need to get involved we have got to be involved in public life okay it is far far past time for the church to get out of the four walls and get into the culture and that that is what this little snippet of 2 hours is all about this is just dipping your toe in the water really okay on this whole subject what we want to do today is we want to expose you to some history to some theology, some Bible, to, and then to a couple of practical examples, okay, and testimonies of graduates of Karis Bible College that have gotten involved and are making a huge difference today, okay? So, um, uh, I want to get things started uh, just by um, sharing with you a little bit from Scripture this morning. Let me see if this works. First off, before I get there, though, let me talk to you just for a minute about truth and liberty. Um, Now, I know we've got people of all backgrounds and connections and everything like that. How many of you, can you just tell me, have never heard of truth and liberty coalition? Do we have anybody today? All right. No. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Okay. So... Uh, Truth and Liberty is connected to and part of Andrew Womack Ministries. We're legally and financially separate, but we work hand in hand with AWMI and Karis Bible College through some legal relationships. But what we're about, uh, our mission, our vision, is to, um, the re- you can see the vision statement on the board, reformation of nations by igniting the latent potential of the body of Christ. How many of you would agree with me this morning that the body of Christ in the earth has yet to achieve its true potential? Can you imagine if it did? That's a glorious vision, isn't it? How are we going to do this? Well, our mission is that we will educate, unify, and mobilize believers in Jesus Christ to effect that reformation through the seven mountains of cultural influence. Well, that's a a mouthful. What I'm trying to say is we need believers, we're getting believers to stand up and go into the public square to stand for truth. And that's everything from government to arts and entertainment to business to education to science and everything else, not just the church. You see, when I came up under a full gospel message, I got saved, I got filled with the Holy Spirit, I was on fire for God, and I found the most spirit-filled church I could find. And you know what I heard out of that church? The unspoken message was, the unspoken one was, That if you really want to serve God, you need to be in the quote-unquote ministry, right? And what I want to share with you today is that the ministry is much bigger than you think it is. (laughs) Much bigger than you think it is. At Truth and Liberty, um, we have five basic interconnected strategies that we're pursuing. The first of these is our live call-in show. Have you guys heard of our show? every day, Monday through Friday, 3.30 to 5 p.m., Andrew Womack, Alex McFarland, uh, Pastor Dwayne Sheriff, myself, and occasional backup hosts like Janet Porter will uh, talk about the issues of the day from a biblical perspective and have, we invite onto the program many of the most uh, prominent Christian leaders who are doing this, who are out there in the field, so that you can learn from them, hear their example, find out about their organizations, and figure out what's going on and where you fit in. So I encourage you to watch that program. Uh, There's some examples of some of the people we've had on recently, Dr. Ben Carson, Ken Ham, how many of you saw that show? Uh, Congressman Bob McEwen, David Barton, Tony Perkins, and many, many more. All right, so um, the other strategies that we are pursuing at Truth and Liberty is collaboration. It's our heart's desire to be a networker, to bring organizations together, those great organizations out there that are already doing an incredible work. Uh, People like Family Policy Alliance, uh, Family Research Council, Uh, wall builders, for example, Now these leading organizations, but the problem we have in the church is that the right hand doesn't know what the left is doing. Everybody's building their own work, but we don't realize what's happening over here, and we need to come together at a strategic level uh, so that we can multiply our effectiveness. In addition to that, we have a media presence where we're issuing blogs, written articles, Uh, we provide resources on our website uh, to enable you to get involved. If you've not checked out the Truth and Liberty website resource center, you need to do that because we have hundreds of links on there that provide you with information about uh, the the things that are going on and about organizations where you can connect and make a difference um, and help you think from a biblical perspective. Uh, In addition to that, um, we are are mobilizing, uh, we have a little bit of ground game uh, where we're mobilizing the church to actually get involved and make a difference. So uh, you might have heard about our voter guides, anybody? All right, so that's an example of it. So I encourage you to check out our website, watch our show, and let the Lord speak to you and lead you uh, as to where you can get involved. Now let's talk about the Bible for a little bit here. Um, how many of you have heard of the Great Commission, right? Great Commission. Okay. What's the Great Commission? la, 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 la. All the world. We know that part, right? Um, let, me, let me back up here, um, if it will. Hey, here we go. All right, the print is actually too small for me. Okay. Jesus came unto the disciples, and he said unto them, All power in heaven and earth is given unto me. Go ye therefore, and teach all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe... Some of these things that I told you about, all things whatsoever that I have commanded you, then lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. I believe firmly that in the body of Christ, it is time for us to reset our understanding of the Great Commission. I believe firmly from history and just reviewing the status, the condition of the church today. That our understanding has become very unbalanced and very myopic on what Jesus was saying in those words in Matthew 28. So what is the Great Commission? The Great Commission is first, it is a restoration of the original commission. The original commission from God to mankind was given in Genesis chapter 1. When the Lord said, uh, let us make man in our image. And in our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over all the cattle and over all the the earth. Okay, and on and on. And then he says, um, uh, he he goes on to say, no, there it is. It says dominion over all the earth. Can you see that in that passage? Right. So there's two thoughts in in the original commission. Number one, you're made in God's image. Number two, you are commanded to take dominion over the earth. Notice in the Great Great Commission, when Jesus comes to his disciples, what's the first thing he says? All All power. Good job. Good answer. Most people say, go ye therefore. No. The first thing he said is all power. And that means all authority. The word there in the Greek is exousia, not dunamis. All authority in heaven and in earth. He already had heaven's authority. He already had that. He came with it. He was the son of God. How did he get the authority on earth? The sinless Lamb of God died for our sins and was raised from the dead and became the second Adam. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45 says, and so it is written, the first Adam became a living soul and the last Adam, a quickening spirit, a life-giving spirit. Jesus Christ is the last Adam. When you get born again, did you know you come out of the first Adam and go into the second Adam? And you are now a representative of Christ on the earth, vested with all of his authority. Now, we live in the age of grace, don't we? Right? Jesus isn't forcing people to come under his authority or forcing people to believe in him. We are commanded to go forward with the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and persuade people. It's voluntary. The day's coming when it won't be voluntary, but we're not there yet. Here's the problem, you guys. Our understanding of the Great Commission has become so limited that we are not fulfilling it anymore. A few weeks ago I looked, I was on my computer doing some research and I found this graph. This is a graph put out by the Pew Research Foundation and it's religion in America. They take a survey every year, they have for decades, measuring religious belief in our country. They, they, want, they ask people, do you believe in God? What religion are you a part of? Are you Christian? Are you Jewish? Are you Muslim? Are you Hindu? Are you other? Okay. This graph shows religious belief in America from 1972 until 2021. The percentage of Americans that said that I am a Christian was over 90%. It was hovered around 90 to 93%. From 1972 all the way up until 1993. And I bet for dollars to donuts that if we went back for decades that number would stay probably be even a little bit higher uh, at times. But it's always going to be around 90%, okay? But if you look, something started happening. In about 1993 something terrible started happening. The number of people that identify as Christians in this nation began dropping. And it's been dropping ever since. Now, as of today, the percentage of Americans that identify as Christians is only, it's in the low 60s. It's about 62% today and dropping fast. In in 15, 10 to 15 years, less than a majority of Americans will identify as Christians. Now, I don't know about you, but that made me sit back in my chair. The bottom line are people who don't believe in God at all are are Jews and other religions. The, The middle line, you know what those are? Those are called unaffiliated, non-religious, the people that do not believe in God, agnostics and atheists. So on our watch, church, right now in America, we are losing our country. So the question becomes, is it working? Is what we're doing working? It's obviously not. So what are we doing wrong? The problem is we don't understand the Great Commission. So it's not only a restoration of the original commission to go into all the earth and take dominion and, re- and be God's representative on the earth. It's also a commandment to do three things. Number one is to make disciples. Notice he did not say converts. Coming to Christ, be, getting born again is step number one in the process. It's, it's, of course, it's essential, it's necessary, it's awesome, it must happen. But it's not the commandment. For us, the commandment is to make disciples. Number two is not just to disciple individuals, but it's to disciple nations. Well, how do we disciple nations, guys? The third thing is not just disciples, but disciples who observe all things whatsoever Christ has commanded us. That's a big, tall order, isn't it? Well, I don't have all the time in the world this morning, but I do want to share with you some thoughts on this. And I'm going to frame it as five myths that are hindering the Great Commission in the church today. Myth number one that I want to share with you, which is widely believed and often spoken, is that the pastor is called just to preach the gospel. Pastors say this when you approach them about getting involved, getting their church involved. You will often hear this, no, I'm just called to preach the gospel. Have you ever heard that before? Okay, note, I want to underline uh, the word just there. I didn't do it, but I should have. It's not that he's not called to preach the gospel, he is. Every one of us is called to preach the gospel. We're all called to proclaim the good news of Christ's death, suffering, resurrection, and glorification, and soon return. Every one of us, including pastors. But the pastor is also called first and foremost to equip the flock, to equip the church, the saints, to do the work of the ministry. Have you ever read Ephesians chapter four? Verse, uh, verse uh, 10 uh, is talking about how Jesus ascended on high and gave gifts unto the men unto men, and what then it talks about what those gifts are. Firstly, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. And why did He give those gifts? Verse, that's right. It says, "For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry." and remember, there are no commas in the Greek. For the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. For the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. The five function of the five-fold ministry in the body of Christ is to equip you and me to go out and to do the work. To do the evangelism, to do the disciple making, to do the good works, to bring unity and to show the love of God. Yes. Wow. Myth number two, the pastor should avoid topics that might offend people. Now, pastors will seldom give voice to this one, and I'm not trying to make pastors my whipping boy today, but I'm just trying to tell you that, that we have a serious problem because it's not working, all right? So many times when we, when we go to churches and we go to pastors and we give them opportunities to get involved and get their church involved and make a difference, what we hear is, yeah, you know, um, gosh, I'm, I just don't deal with those issues, And the unspoken message is, the reason is because if I do, I'm afraid people will leave. I'm afraid I will scare people off. Okay? The truth is that if you're called to make disciples, which you are, then we must teach all things whatsoever God has commanded. We do not have the luxury to uh, eliminate things that are offensive to people. How many of you know Jesus offended people? Okay? The third myth is... We just need to love people. Have you ever heard this one? Okay. Um, I've heard it so much that it it just makes my stomach turn. Because I believe we ought to love people. Don't get me wrong. We must love people. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. It is impossible to represent Christ and not walk in love because you can't. If you're not in love, you're not representing Christ, because God is love. So don't get me wrong, love is huge. We must love. And you can have the truth all day long, but if you don't have love, your truth won't do any good. But the flip side is also true. That you can love people all day long, but if you don't have the courage to share the truth, your love will do no good. You might just love them all the way to hell. Number four, some things are secular and some things are sacred. This is a deadly, deadly lie. It's infected the church, not just our culture. Oh, you belong over here, Christian. You belong inside the four walls, Christian. You see, we've let that philosophy of separation invade our thinking. And the church is becoming more like the culture instead of the culture becoming more like the church. Right? Because we're afraid. We've been intimidated by this lie. The truth is, guys, that Jesus has authority over all the earth. He said that, didn't he? And it's not, listen to me now, he's not talking just geography. You understand? It's not just meaning, oh, I have authority in Iceland and I have authority in Africa. It's I have authority in every single aspect of human life. Every human endeavor I want to be Lord over. I'm to let that sink in for a second. Genesis chapter 1 again, verse 28. Go and take dominion over all the earth. Not by force, not by compulsion. We're not talking about bullets and guns here. We're talking about truth, with truth. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, the prophet says that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. My question for you how do the waters cover the sea? Fully, completely, deeply. Psalm chapter 24, verse 1 says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So I want to say to you, Christian, who you, you're thinking some things are off limits for the church, how do you square it with the fact that God owns it all? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31 says, Whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatsoever. Okay? When you go to a football game, to the glory of God. When you go to church, for the glory of God. When you go to work, for the glory of God. When you're raising your kids, for the glory of God. When you're paying your taxes, for the glory of God. Help us. Okay? So, myth number five. Some occupations are sinful, worldly, and dirty, so Christians ought to avoid them. Now, this one's a little bit old school, but since I came up under the Pentecostal movement, I heard this, right? Don't you be going to movies now. Don't you be getting involved in politics. You don't need to be making money and getting rich because that's dirty. God wants you poor so you can be humble. Do yeah. you follow me, guys? Yeah. Now I know here at Karis you all don't think that way. But the The grace of God, the Spirit of God, the Word of God has made us righteous on the inside. We do not need to fear that occupations are going to make us defiled or sinful before the Lord. So we need believers to stand up, to rise up, and to go into politics to make it clean. We need believers to rise up, stand up, and go into the movie business to make it clean. You see, we're the light of the world. How are they going to see the light if we remain inside the four walls? The world is in darkness. They don't know it, but they're desperately crying out for what you have. And they're not going to know about what you have if you're not there doing life in front of them and with them. Most people come to Christ the old-fashioned way. And you're thinking altar call. Wrong. Most people come to Christ through personal relationship with a Christian. Because they know somebody who believes in Jesus and shares Christ with them. Right? How are you going to share Christ with them if all you ever do is go to church? Ouch. How did Jesus say we would win the world? He actually gave us six things. The first one is to preach the gospel. That needs to proclaim the good news of Jesus' death, resurrection, okay? That's step one, number one. Awesome. No, and, and I wanna say before, I don't wanna trivialize this again. We actually, evangelism in the church has been dropping over the last 10 years, okay? Here's what's going on, I believe, is that the more we come under assault, the more our, our thoughts and beliefs and positions on things become criticized and you get attacked and doxed and everything else in the media, we start to shrink back, right? But the truth is that we need to become more vocal than ever. We need to be out in the, in the public square proclaiming Jesus Christ with all humility, love, and boldness, all right. I went to the uh, conference from Family Research Councils a few weeks ago, and I was so excited because one of the main sponsors was Evangelism Explosion. I hadn't heard anything from Evangelism Explosion in 30 years. But the, he, the guy uh, who's over it says, he told me, yeah, they had 70 million people come to Christ last year. Right? But that's, that's worldwide. In America it's not so. And that's because churches are not, they're dropping the mantle of evangelism. We need to get out there and win souls to Christ, Okay. Number two is to teach the Word. Teach the Word. The Great Commission, Jesus said, teach all nations. He said, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Right? So, um, I'm running out of time. If every single church service is a salvation message, you're not making disciples. Now, listen, guys. The purpose, you got to hear me on this. The purpose of the worship service, the purpose of the church coming together is not to win the lost. Uh Uh-oh, did you hear that sacred cow tip over? The purpose of the church service is to strengthen the body so that the body can go out and win the lost. You see, because we will, listen, it's a math problem, y'all. It's a math problem. We will never, it's impossible mathematically, we will not win the world to Christ if we think we're going to do it through altar calls. You can't get enough people at your altar. You can't get enough people in your church building they're being born too fast. It's literally true. The only way we're going to win the world is if we get equipped and get out there in the streets in the workforce and everywhere else and personally win our neighbors and our friends and other people to Christ. Okay? Don't get me wrong, I love altar calls. I'm not against them. I'm all for it. Okay? I'm just saying it's not the pastor's job. It's your job and my job. Number three, testify. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, you shall be witnesses of me. Revelation chapter 12 says that that we overcame the devil and the world through our testimony and we love not our lives unto death, okay? So uh, good works is the one that I I could, I really want to just camp on this one. Now Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, he said, let your lights shine. How many of you remember that? Okay. And then what's the rest of it? So men may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Okay, Christian. Tim, I'm trying to hurry here. When I, when you, if you're like me, when you, when you think good work, what do you think of? I think of helping the poor. I think of a soup kitchen, a clothes closet, You know, uh, building the, uh, you know painting the fence for my neighbor or whatever. Those are good works, aren't they? But you know what else is a good work? How about the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution that abolished slavery? How about the decision in Dobbs versus Mississippi that said abortion, there is no unalienable right to abortion in America, right? How about about a government, how about a nation that has enough courage that it will send its troops into battle, into war to win the freedom of other people, not just their own? You tell me these aren't good works? How about inventing the light bulb? How about inventing the superconductor? Okay, how about inventing a cure to disease? How about making movies that bring glory to God? How about being a journalist that glorifies God and tells the truth? And on and on and on and on we could go. These are good works. And when the believer does it with the right heart and attitude, it brings glory to God and wins the world to Christ. The next thing is to to be unified, but I'm out of time. And so I'm gonna gonna stop now, y'all. Listen, I can't do that because I would, if I kept going, I'd rob you, because our next speaker is way better than me. I'm really honored today to be able to introduce to you our next speaker here at the Citizens Academy, and that's uh, my brother and and good friend, Tim Barton. Tim is the president of Wall Builders. Amen. Why don't you stand up, guys? Tim is the president of Wall Builders, founded by his father, David Barton. The organization is devoted to restoring America's godly heritage. He's an awesome teacher, man of God. Come on up, they're not going to let me finish.
1: Well, it's my pleasure to be with you guys today. Uh, I I'd love being able to uh, tag team with Richard. Uh, man, such anointing and so many important things that our world and culture is losing today. Uh, I want to tie in and connect some dots when it comes to uh, the Christian's influence in America, and specifically Christianity in early America, because I want us to see, as Richard's talking about doing good works and what that looks like, man, America for so long has been a city on a hill, and if you look at the last couple of decades, wow right? We got some problems. We are not going the right direction. And yet with that being said, most people don't recognize one of the reasons that America was so unique, so different, so special, there was a foundation that was laid. And Jesus talked about foundations, right? You can build on different things. And if you build on the rock, storm comes and you survive the storm. This is something that made America so unique and special. And and, and to give you perspective by comparison, if you look at the United Nations, uh, there's 193 current nations that are part of the UN. And that number does change from time to time. But why it's worth comparing America to other nations. A lot of people today get the perspective that America is this really bad nation. And I always want to ask them, like, compared to who? Right? Like, this is a big deal. Because I don't know, it sounds like you've never been on a mission trip to a third world nation. I would highly encourage, by the way, go on mission trips and several things will happen for you, right? You will be able to connect with people in a different culture, different language. You'll be able to share the love of Jesus because the love of Jesus transcends language, right? It's really an amazing thing on mission trips, but also it gives you a recognition of why America is unique, different, and special. And if you look even at at the reality of America and our entire existence, we had one constitution written in 1787. If you look at other nations, and, and this is a comparison of stability, because most Americans have no idea how stable America is as a nation. We take it for granted, right? That that there's always been elections and a peaceful transfer of power. There's always been stability. That's not the way it is for most of the world. And and most Americans, again, have no idea that we enjoy unprecedented stability. There was a research project done by a group of professors and what they determined in in the history of the world, all recorded human history, they asked the question, what is the average length of a constitution in world history? The answer they came up with in world history, the average length of a constitution is only 17 years. America this year, we celebrated our 236th year under our constitution. All I'm trying to paint for you right now is a picture of the stability of America. where America has lots and lots of problems which is why we believe God's put us here on this earth to help bring resolution and righteousness and fix some of these problems. But the reality is even with our problems, we still enjoy more blessings, benefits, more prosperity, more stability than virtually anywhere else in the world. And part of the reason, again, goes back to the foundation of the founding fathers late, where a lot of people today, we, we don't know the story. If, if we asked, right, so why did America become a nation? Well, you have to go back and there was this king, right? King George III, and we separated from, from England And and really, we announced in the Declaration, if I asked people to explain the Declaration, I think most of us would have a hard time explaining the Declaration of Independence, right? And I say that in fairness and honesty. If we said, hey, what's in the Declaration? The, The grievance most people know is, well, taxation without representation. Okay, cool. That was number 17 on a list of 27 what were the other 26, right? And here's where we, we just don't know as much sometimes we think we do. And so I wanna give you a breakdown real quick. I, I think it will help make it easier to understand. If you ever have to explain the Declaration of Independence to somebody, the Declaration was the greatest breakup letter ever written, where we were like, hey, so like we've been in a relationship for a while, but it's not really working out. And to clarify, it's not me, it's all you. Here's all the reasons, you're a problem. This is literally, right? This is what this was, and what's crazy about this, the, the declaration, the, the primary author was Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was 33 years old when he did, did the declaration, and, and the, probably the more famous phrase is in the second paragraph, where Jefferson identified, he said, we owe these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just power from the consent of the governed. A couple important things to note. Is the the opening phrase of this paragraph, Jefferson said, We hold these truths to be self-evident. We are living in a world that is not sure truth even exists anymore. Right? We're, we're not even sure what a boy and girl is anymore. Okay? The, the interesting thing about this, the founding fathers. They were a very diverse group of individuals coming from very different places, some high levels of education, some low education. There were farmers and and, and doctors and there were attorneys and very diverse. They had a lot of different opinions and they actually disagreed a lot about a lot of things. But they said, what we agree on, there's a certain set of truths. We all agree on these. And this is what Jefferson identified. What were the truths? Well, he started off saying that we're all created equal. That we have God-given rights and that government's primary job is to protect our God-given rights. And and it's worth noting, they said these truths are self-evident. That means these truths should be obvious and evident to everybody. What is interesting to me today is there is a growing movement saying that we should no longer study the Declaration of Independence, that kids shouldn't read that in school because it's racist. Why is it racist? Because when the founding fathers wrote that all men were created equal... People say, well, the majority of them had slaves, so they were only arguing for equality for white people, not for black people, okay? That's the argument being said right now. Here is what I want to throw before you that is so important, truth matters. And and truth is not subjective, right? It's not, well, this is my truth. No, no, there is no your truth and my truth, there is the truth, and we can have opinions, right? But, but truth does exist, and, and here's where not knowing history causes a lot more problems. When people lie, the only reason Americans, generally speaking, believe a lie is because they don't know the truth. When we don't know the truth, it's easier to believe a lie, right? And also, biblically speaking, what does the devil do when he tries to deceive us? He makes us question truth. Did God really say When we don't know truth, it's easier to fall for the lie. Well, the truth is, let me back you up. When Jefferson did the Declaration of Independence, the original draft, you actually can look this up today. It's available online, easy to find. The original draft was four pages. In those four pages, the first page is where he lays out the political philosophy. It's where he, the second paragraph, we owe these truths to be self-evident. The second page, he starts listing grievances. The third page, he's listing grievances. The fourth page, he wraps up the political philosophy. On the third page, the last grievance was the largest grievance. In the original draft, there were 24 grievances. The last grievance was nearly half of the page. Okay, huge grievance. Now, what is the grievance that Jefferson thought was so important it would take up nearly half of the third page? Let me read you part of this grievance and see if you can see what he was really frustrated with under the king, right? Now, the grievances are the reason we're separating from the king. Here is the grievance he identified. He has waged cruel war, this is the king. He has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating his most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere or to incur a miserable death in their transportation thither. Let's pause. That's the slave trade. Okay. He's saying the king is doing the slave trade. Let's keep going. It continues on that, uh, let me find my line, sorry. Uh, This piratical warfare, I was looking for a capital letter and apparently he doesn't capitalize things. So uh, (laughs) this piratical warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers. Let me pause you. Piratical warfare, that's pirates. Infidel powers, those are non-believers. Who were the non-Christian pirates? Those were the Muslim pirates from North Africa, the Barbary pirates, where the Barbary powers war came from. Hey, by the way, guess who started the African slave trade? The Muslim nations of North Africa. Now, why Jefferson is doing this? He's saying the king is doing what the Muslim pirates are doing. He continued on the opprobrium of infidel powers is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain. The word Christian is the first word in the declaration that wasn't in cursive, it was printed and underlined. He was drawing attention that the king says he's a Christian. But he's doing what the Muslim pirates are doing. He's doing the same thing. Determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold. The word men in the original draft was fully capitalized and printed. Capital M-E-N. Why does that matter? Jefferson had already written in the second paragraph that all men were created equal. And now he just drew attention to the fact, guess who is a man? All of these people that are being enslaved in the slave trade from Africa. That... I don't seem real racist. In fact, it seems the opposite of racist. Let's keep going because the grievance isn't over. He says he has prosecuted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt. What does it mean to suppress a legislative attempt? It means when a state tried to pass a law, the king vetoed it. In fact, I can take you back to many founding fathers who talked about this. In fact, one of the easy examples is Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin in 1773 wrote a letter to the Reverend Dean Woodward where he was explaining the anti-slavery sentiments that were growing in America. Here's part of what he said in the letter. He said a disposition to abolish slavery prevails in North America that many of Pennsylvanians have set their slaves at liberty and that even the Virginia Assembly have petitioned the king for permission to make a law for preventing more or the importation of more into that colony. This request, however, will probably not be granted as their former laws of that kind have always been repealed. couple things. He said in Pennsylvania, we're already setting all our slaves free. 1773, before the declaration even happens. He says, but even in Virginia, they're trying to pass a new law to stop the slave trade in Virginia. He says, but probably this isn't gonna work because every time they've tried to do it before the king vetoed it. Now, if, if he says former laws, again, this is not the first time have always been repealed the king has always struck them down what does that mean it means that there was a very strong anti-slavery sentiment among many of the colonies and this is something that we actually can walk through looking at the founding fathers the notion that many of them were anti-slavery is so counter-cultural narrative today because if we look at the declaration signers there were 56 guys on the declaration and the argument is that 41 of them at some point in their life owned slaves Now I disagree with that number a little bit, but for the sake of argument, let's say, okay, 41 of them at some point in their life owned slaves. Here's what no one ever talks about. How many of those individuals that at some point in their life owned slaves, how many of them actually came out against slavery at some point? How many of them actually freed their slaves? How many of them actually started abolition societies or worked for abolition societies or funded abolition societies? Nobody ever talks about the rest of the story. And yet this is why when you look at someone like Benjamin Franklin, no no historian, considers him a racist, even though he had slaves. Why? Because he was one of the guys from Pennsylvania that voluntarily set his slaves free. And then to go a little further, Franklin signed the declaration in 1776, but in 1787, he's part of the Constitutional convention. And at the time he is at the Constitutional convention, he's actually the president of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, seeking to end slavery in all of the 13 colonies. So he went from being a slave owner freeing his slaves to leading and being president of an abolition society. The reason I point this out is literally today people are saying, academics are saying that kids should not learn or study or even read the declaration because it's racist. No, it's not. It's the opposite of racists. Because when the founding father said that all men are created equal, they literally meant all men. Now, the reason, by the way, that grievance did not make it in the final draft, John Hancock said they would only include in the final draft what had been unanimously agreed to by the body, and there were two colonies that opposed that grievance, Georgia and South Carolina. They said that up to this point, they have not tried to to ban the slave trade. They didn't have a problem with slavery, so they didn't think that needed to be included. And so it was removed from the final draft. Jefferson wrote in his journal how much he regretted the fact that there were not more outspoken abolitionists from the North who would have tried more fervently to convince the Southern pro-slavery founding fathers of the error of their ways. He said we could have ended that evil in that moment had they agreed. Okay, but here again is what's worth noting. There were 13 original colonies, two were against it. I don't know how good you are at math. That means 11 were for it. Okay, the vast majority of the founding fathers are not in the pro-slavery category. It's just that we don't know that history. But let me take you back. In the original draft and the final draft, this phrase appears, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Self-evident means an obvious truth. Is it obvious that we are all created equal? No. In India, they still have a caste system. They believe in reincarnation. You pick any major Muslim nation in the Middle East or Africa. They don't believe in equality between men and women, much less between Islam and any other faith. Equality is not a common thought for most of the world. What about the idea we have God-given rights? You think Putin believes in God-given rights? I'm not sure most of our Congress in America believes in God-given rights anymore. These are not self-evident truths. And by the way, it wasn't self-evident to the king, which is why we were separating so why would the Founding Fathers say these are self-evident? These are only self-evident truths to people who know what the Bible says. Yes. If you know what the Bible says, these are self-evident truths, why? Because where do we get the idea that we are created equal? Isn't Genesis 1, 26, 27. That God made him in his image, male and female, he created them. And let me also point out, the Bible never tells us what shape, size, or color Adam and Eve were. Yeah. You know why? Because it doesn't matter we live in a world that is so embracing Marxism that the group you are a part of, the the way you identify, the the category, the box you are in is the most important thing, not in God's economy, because in God's economy, it says that there is no Jew or Greek. There is no male or female. There is no Scythian slave or free. We are all one in Christ. See, the idea of equality and being created equal comes from the Bible. The idea that we have God-given rights starts in the very beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden. God gives them the freedom of choice. He gives them the freedom to choose him or reject him. That's the freedom of religion. He gives them the freedom of speech. God gives right at the very beginning. This is the very beginning of Genesis. As you go through Genesis, why does God establish government? Well, the very first civil ordinance given by God to man is after Noah lands the ark on Mount Ararat and Noah gets off and God tells Noah, if man sheds blood by man, his blood will be shed. Meaning if man murders somebody else, then y'all get together. And y'all need to put that dude down. Right? That's what that means. Okay? Why? Because murderers were taking away the first thing God gave you, your right to life. Government exists to protect your God-given rights. That is why government exists. That is literally why God established the first civil ordinance. And, 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 and as we walk through this, this is something that even look in the Declaration, a lot of people don't know these connections, but I can point out this used to be fairly obvious. In fact, early historians used to identify this all the time. There's a book Clinton Rossiter did, uh, in the 1950s, it was called The Sea Time of the Republic. And in this book, he identified, he said, there are six people, the majority of thoughts that led to independence, that led to freedom, led to the Declaration, came from six people. He said, the six most influential leaders that gave us the thoughts at birth liberty were Benjamin Franklin, Richard Bland, the Reverend Thomas Hooker, the Reverend Roger Williams, the Reverend John Wise, and the Reverend Jonathan Mayhew. I want to point out historians used to identify, you know who the most influential early Americans were? It wasn't even the founding fathers. It was the pastors. Who taught the founding fathers, right? Where did the founding fathers learn what the Bible said? Their pastors had been teaching them what the Bible said for years. And easy examples to point out, you take someone like John Wise, how was this pastor influential in early America? Well, he was a pastor in the late 1600s, early 1700s. In 1717, there was a book of sermons that he had that came out, list of all his sermons, And in this list of sermons from 1717, in this grouping of sermons, he actually preached a sermon where he said that taxation without representation was tyranny. He preached a sermon where he said that God's preferred form of government was the consent of the governed. And another sermon, he said that all men are created equal and they've been endowed with certain rights from their creator. If you've ever read the Declaration, all of those phrases appear specifically verbatim in the Declaration. How did a listing of sermons from 1717 make it the declaration? Because those sermons were reprinted in 1772 by the Sons of Liberty. Because the Sons of Liberty, they were trying to get Americans stirred up and involved to recognize the tyranny and oppression that the king was doing. And how even what the king was doing was unbiblical. They read these sermons and they said, everybody should read these sermons. So they reprinted those sermons. in 1776, when the founding fathers came together, what's quite fascinating is that nearly every single founding father who their library was preserved, you know what? historians found in their library? The sermons of John Wise. When the founding fathers come together, not only the founding fathers read these sermons, they own these sermons. Earlier historians even pointed this out. Uh, B.F. Morse in 1864, he explained some of the most glittering sentences in the Immortal Declaration of Independence are almost literal quotations from this essay of John Wise. It was used as a political textbook in the great struggle for freedom. Now, all I want to point out is historians used to know The most influential people in early America, where do these ideas came from? Those pastors. Even if you go to Calvin Coolidge on the 150th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, he went back to Independence Hall, which is where the Declaration was initially drafted, And he gave his speech, his speech is online. The whole thing is actually worth reading. It says a lot of good stuff in there, but he covers this part of the declaration as well. Here's what he said about it. He said, the thoughts in the declaration can very largely be traced back to what John Wise was writing. Here was a doctrine of equality, of popular sovereignty and inalienable rights asserted by Wise. Even presidents used to know. What does that mean? It means this history was so obvious and evident that everybody knew it. Everybody knew. America was a nation. Built on the Bible, influenced by our pastors. This is who we were. In fact, you take someone like Sam Adams, Sam Adams is most known today because there's a beer named after him, right? However, it's a major disservice to him because he was the father of the American Revolution. He was one of the most outspoken of the Christians of the founding fathers. And he was one of the leaders of the Sons of Liberty. Well, one of the things that the Sons of Liberty determined early on is that if they're going to get everybody on the same page, they needed to to be thinking some of the same thoughts, which means they needed to have something in writing that everybody's reading. So we're getting on the same page. They came up with the idea of what was known as Committees of Correspondence. And this is kind of like the first group text thread there was, right? It's like this GroupMe app, it's a mass email, and they wanted everybody to be on the same thing. So they wrote a letter, they called it a circular. They wrote this letter and they made copies and they sent it to all the colonies, so all 13 colonies have the same letters. They're gonna read this. Sam Adams wrote the very first ever Committee of Correspondence. You can find it online. It is three sections in this one, one letter, but there's three sections. And it was the rights of the colonists as citizens, the rights of the colonists as Christians and the rights of the colonists as men. And what he was explaining is the king has violated all these because the king had put aside the British Bill of Rights and you guys don't have the British Bill of Rights anymore. The king had violated basic Christian standards and violated even basic decency of humanity But what's interesting is when you get to the second section, it was the rights of the colonists as Christians, the opening line, now this is when when John, or excuse me, Sam Adams trying to get everybody on the same page, the opening line of this, here's how it reads. He says, these may be best understood by reading and carefully studying the institutes of the great lawgiver and head of the Christian church, which will be found clearly written and promulgated in the New Testament. If you want to understand your rights as a Christian, he says you should read the Bible and study the life of Jesus. When when the founding fathers are encouraging people and do joining their movement by saying, read your Bible more, that's kind of significant, right? Here's what is so important that we disconnect today. Today, most people have no idea how much the founding fathers were influenced by the Bible. And and I could take actually weeks going through and telling stories for hours and hours and hours a day about who these people were and how they were influenced by the Bible and what the role the Bible played in early America. But the bottom line, as as you just heard Richard lay out, is it used to be that we had people that studied the Bible enough that they used the Bible and they transformed the culture and ultimately the world they lived in. They were not perfect. But they followed a perfect God and they strived as hard as they could to do things that would honor him. The reason we have the strongest foundation of any nation in the history of the world is because our nation was built on the Bible more than any other foundation, and that's why it lasts. The reason our nation is struggling and crumbling today is because we are removing the foundation that allowed us to be successful. The Bible tells us that the foundations be destroyed. What can the righteous do? What that means is as Christians, we have to once again restore that foundation so that we can once again have a strong structure and a strong nation. You guys take a break.
0: Have you been praying about how to make your business your mission field? GospelTruth.tv Business features leadership and financial stewardship training from industry experts. Learn the next steps to building wealth and using it to grow God's kingdom. Tune in Saturdays to GospelTruth.tv Business and watch anytime with GospelTruth.tv Premium. Visit Gospel Truth TV today for biblical teaching you can trust. Anyway, Priscilla is one of the most amazing people I know. She is an absolute dynamo, hard worker, never stops going. Anything I ask her to do, she does and does it with excellence. She is a real trooper. She brings to her position here at Truth and Liberty um, experience in a career in manufacturing at a management level. Uh, she's bilingual and just one of the nicest, sweetest people I know. And I think that she is amazing. So come on up, Priscilla. You guys, would you let her uh, know that uh, you love her? and? Thank you, Richard. She, she's going to be talking to you today about how to get involved.
2: Thanks. Let's see here. Um, While well, I'm definitely honored to share with you all what the Lord has taught me out on the field and how to get engaged, and the things that I've seen actually out on the field that Wherever God calls you, whatever fear, fear, fierce, fierce, fear, fear. <laughs> I know Richard says it a lot. But it's a mountain to whatever mountain that call, God has called you to. Hopefully I can help you, um, guide you a little on where to get engaged in, okay? So let me like Sue. So. so there is four steps that the Holy Spirit has uh, shown me. Um, and these four steps, remember these four steps, because these four steps are key to um, for you to use as you um, are called into your mountain. So remember these four steps. One of the four steps, first four steps is relationship. Engagement must happen first. So you must develop relationship out there. Um, whether it's in government, whether it's in education, whether it's in media, and so on. So relationship is number number one. Second is adding value. Now, adding value you must ask because every situation is different, every community is different, every church is different. You must ask what their needs are. Then you provide those resources and tools that they may need, whether it's a skill that you have or... um, or just a financial resources to just bless them. Second, when you do the first two, that comes influence. Now they can trust you because you developed a relationship, you added value, so that's the loyalty part where you're there constantly, you know, helping or blessing them, serving. When you do these three, then comes mobilization. So this is what I experience. So in 2019, I started a uh, nonprofit called Destiny Walkers. In 2019, um, I, me and probably a couple of friends were the only ones showing up to school boards. Everything else was crickets. Nobody else was at these school board meetings. And so the Lord had positioned us there. And, you know, I started de- developing relationships with the previous school board, believe it or not. Why? Because it was relationship. It was adding value to the school district, which I served. We served in the uh, library. We served at the lunchroom. We served at the counseling office. We served at the nurse's office, actually. And so we started developing relationship. We started adding value, and we gained the influence. So another thing on influence that I'm going to share with you that the Lord has showed me is that we are called to influence the Gentiles and the rulers and kings. That's where we forget, okay? So you always wanna keep that in mind. So as we gained influence and favor, and this is not just in this district, there is actually a principal that um, down in Colorado Springs where I volunteered that wanted some help with, because they had, this district was already like high-risk adolescents in this high school. And they wanted us to actually help them to have an after-school program. But again, it came with relationship, it it went with adding value, serving them, and we gained the influence. Now we were ready to mobilize, right? But COVID hit and everything was shut down, which is okay because it revealed a lot, right? So, um, some of the areas that you can um, uh, use these four steps in relationship, adding value, influence, and mobilization, is in education. As Sue Patterson was sharing, you know, the first step is to attend a school board meeting. Okay, if you haven't attended one, at least attend one while you're here in Woodland Park, and then you can gain some knowledge, you can take it back to your school district, and you can kind of understand the process of a school board meeting. Second, volunteer at your school. So every um, uh, district has a district administration office and a website. There is volunteering applications there that you can fill out. Um, And you can actually... uh, volunteer at any school in that school district, whether it's elementary, junior high, or high school, Okay. And also school accountability committees. That's another um, area that you can volunteer in, district accountability committees. And these you do not have to run for. There is a a lack of attendance at the state State Board of Education. So if you are called to more of the state-level board meetings, there's a website on there. They do have a monthly meeting, and this is in every state. Let me see my time. Okay, government. Now, this is a pretty long one here. Government, you can attend any political meeting, attend your city council, commissioner's meeting. There's GOP meetings. Uh, meet and greet. This is where I actually encourage evangelism. You want to go get them. You want to see where their principles, where they stand on, preach the gospel to them, and correct them if they need to be corrected through the word with love and truth. I, I kind of do that quite a bit. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> also, at, um, you can attend at the state capitol, the legislative meetings that they have there also. Um, Help a campaign, like Sue was mentioning, get involved with a a candidate, educate yourself on how to run for office, and even if you're not called to run for office, educate yourself anyway so you can know the process. Work for a Christian nonprofit, a civically-minded one, just kind of like Truth and Liberty. If you're trying to look for a job... We tend, like Richard was saying, we try to make our own little kingdoms when there's already an organization that we can bless, right, and serve. So just serve an organization that is Christian-based, spirit-filled, and um, civically-minded. Now elections, if you like the whole election and, and wanna uh, do something with the election, then there's poll watching, there's election judge, you could become an election judge. Also there's training for that, so you can kind of understand that. And even if, like I said before, if you're not called to be um, a poll watcher and so on, get to know the process, you wanna understand. Also voter um, registration, VRD organizer, you can go to your uh, secretary of state and apply there for that. That means you can uh, do voter registration out at Walmart, at any church and so on. Now for the people that are, were interested in all the whole vaccine and medical stuff. So I know some conservative doctors here in the state of Colorado that I've met. One thing that they did mention is that there is nobody for public speaking at their state board, uh, medical board meetings. So if you are called to that arena, I don't know much about the medical stuff, but if that's something that's been on your heart, um, they do have um, meetings every third Wednesday of the month, and uh, there is their website also. Now, as for the church, if you are called minister at your church and you want to serve at your church, now there's a cultural impact group. That you can start it's pretty much a civic ministry we start ministries for children ministry we start ministries for marriage we start ministry for all of this a cultural impact team is pretty much a civic ministry is to get engaged in your local government and understand what's happening there's a lot of us that want to know that but yet um, just want to be informed right um, and then church booths at communities Uh, events. That's one thing that we're lacking that I've seen out in the community is that if you want to promote your church, start at the community. Go to the community. Share what your church is doing. Okay, so boost that community events. As for business, for you business people, uh, there's a couple of chambers of commerce meetings that I attended. Um, And so those are really important to understand the process of the Chambers of Commerce and who's on the board. Um, Also business conferences as we know. But the Chambers of Commerce meeting, one thing that the Holy Spirit showed me there is that we are still limiting him as business. I'm not in the business. So praise Jesus. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because the Chambers of Commerce These people need Jesus. Most of these people are very woke, even though they still govern like they're conservative, but they need the clarity of truth, right? And so don't limit God by just starting your own little business. The mission is to move God forward. Like Sue was saying, position yourself. When we position ourselves, we position him. And so as you go into any board meeting, if you're called to get one of those seats on those boards, you go after it. You position him, you, you position yourself, you position him. Or you help to position others, then we position him. Okay? So your mission is to get one of those seats. So the Chambers of Commerce with the Holy Spirit is like, oh, that's right. If a business spirit filled, a person that knows truth and sits on that board, the influence Remember influence, relationship, adding value, and influence. And so um, we have to learn to navigate into enemy camp, okay? And that's what Jesus was teaching me there at that meeting. My church yet doesn't know how to navigate through enemy camp, to get into one of those seats, to influence the hearts of those people on the board, and then influence the CEOs, the construction companies that come into town. You influence their hearts with the truth and the gospel. Guess where their money is going to go? To the kingdom of God, right? You bring them in. You bring them in to be part of the kingdom. Okay. So there's a lot of uh, how do you say? So this, all these mountains, you got to think about it as a mission field. We're all evangelism. So. This is this is the way I evangelize, is influencing the hearts of who the Gentiles and the rulers and kings. So we are to minister always. These are mission fields. Jesus did it well, and He showed me through this. You know, we see Him going to through uh, to the cross. But First Peter Peter, uh, 18, nine, oh, what nineteen, eighteen nineteen. He went to the pit of hell. He navigated through enemy camp, right? For three days. And what did he do? He preached the gospel. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what he taught me in those meetings. And being out on the field is navigating and never forgetting to preach the gospel and correcting the hearts of those rulers and kings, right? Bringing them back to those principles. Jesus did it well and why? Because he knew who he was. Here at Caris, you're learning who you are in Christ. Get that revelation deep down in your core. You walk into enemy camp, you don't forget to preach the gospel and you correct those rulers and kings, okay? And you position yourself with the whole mindset of positioning either somebody else or yourself because we have the Holy Ghost And then when we do that, we position him. And the overflow of the principles will go in through rules, through policies, through whatever we do out on that field. Whatever God has called you to do. So he did it well. He knew who he was, the son of God. And he went to go, and the mission remained the same, to get back what belonged to ours, to us. So it's time, church. It's time to suit up and show up. And suit up meaning with the word of God. Suit up every morning. Suit up, show up, occupy. And we need to, let me go to my notes here. It feels really good. So yes, like I said, time to suit up, show up for the purpose of influencing the hearts of these Gentiles and the rulers and kings. It's time to position ourselves because when we position him, we position ourselves, we position him. It's time to occupy and it's time for these uncircumcised Philistines to move out of the way. Okay? It's time, church. We need to be bold. We need to be fearless. If you know who you are in Christ, you go into a meeting, you pray, okay? Every time I go into a meeting, I know I carry the holy fire within me. And you walk in there with a kingdom attitude. Get out of my way. My mission remains the same. I do not look to the left or to the right. So don't get emotional when you go into these meetings okay a lot of us can get emotional overwhelmed do not get emotional yes sometimes there's times I feel frustrated a little weary about things but I go back to that who I am in Christ get out of the way you can you're more than welcome if you're you have an open heart to hear the gospel you're more than welcome to come into this kingdom but other than that the uh, I do not look to the left and I do not look to the right my mission remains the same, is to move the kingdom forward, to help a brother or sister occupy those positions, to, to position also myself. And so you have to have that mindset. It's, um, and one other thing also, church, it's time to start thinking in a, in a biblical worldview. Andrew has a lot of teachings on this. We must think biblically and speak Babylonian. That's what we need to start learning. To speak that Babylonian talk out on the field. So it's time, church. Let's suit up and let's show up. In Jesus' name, thank you.
0: All right, praise the Lord. Okay, so we've got a few minutes left. I want to share. These last few minutes with you, um, beginning with a scripture um, in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10. Uh, In this passage, um, the the prophet Zechariah um, says, Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin, to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. Now, the context of this verse is the Jews had returned to the Holy Land from captivity in Babylon. Just want that to sink in for a second, right? They were coming back to the promised land to rebuild what had been stolen from them. Do you understand? Yes. To rebuild the house of God. That's right. Come on. And, me, and the problem, the problem was, <laughs> I will, the problem was, <clears throat> the problem was that they were all they came back to the land, and they had a big party, and then they all went to their homes. Yeah. And they got real busy building their own houses, starting their own careers, planting their crops, raising their families. But what stood neglected? The temple, the house of God. Okay? And, and they're looking at this massive project, and they're going, well, it's too big, Lord. And God says to them, "Despise not the day of small beginnings." This is why I asked these two ladies in particular to speak to you today. I didn't call on any congressmen or senators, any bigwigs. No, no, not putting you champions down, because these are the champions, right? Novices in the political arena. How did they get started? They prayed. God, what do you want me to do? Priscilla, even before she went to practical government school, is going to the public schools helping kids learn to read. Offering herself as a servant. Right? You know, one of the problems we have here, church, is that we think that our enemy are the people with D's after their name. We think the enemy are the quote-unquote liberals. Or the quote progressives, right? They're not the enemy. They're the tool of the enemy. They don't know they're being wicked. Well, most of them don't. <laughs> so, Priscilla's so like, I don't turn to the left nor to the right. I know what I'm called to do and I'm going forward. Get out of my way. She's talking to the devil. Right? Because we know that he is the enemy that works in the children of disobedience where we used to be. So we enter into this field with love and compassion, but a resolute heart. Right? That we know what we're about. And her testimony is so phenomenal to me. What God spoke to her, he said to Priscilla, and you tell me if I'm wrong, he said to her, if you position, uh, when you position my people, you position me. You see, so we, no matter what you're called to do, in the, in the public square, you are positioning God himself. You are positioning Jesus Christ, okay? God in us, working through us. And to know it's not easy because Satan doesn't want to give up his thrones, right? But the Lord is with you and the Lord is going to empower you. But you got to start small, right? I mean, chances are, unless God's already given you a position of influence of some kind. One of the biggest, biggest problems. Now, everybody who's under the age of 40, raise your hand right now. All right, I love you guys. You heard me say that, right? Okay. So I've got three boys. Two of them are grown. One of them's 13. I pastor of church. I know what I'm about to say is true. One of the major problems of the youngest generation right now is a microwave mentality. Now, don't take this of offense. You've grown up in this conditioning. It's not your fault. But you got to shake this off, guys, because you've got to start small. The vision that God has put inside of your heart, the dream, the passion, it's not going to happen today. You have to start where he puts you, one step at a time on the path to accomplish it. Do not get frustrated with your pastor because he won't put you in the pulpit. Do not get frustrated with your boss because you're not running the office yet. You serve, you develop relationship, you bring the spirit of excellence of Daniel to the situation and God will promote you. You cannot, now listen guys, I gotta, you can't short circuit it, you can't shortcut it, right? So be patient and be obedient to that voice, that still small voice that says, this is the way, walk ye in it. Even if it doesn't make sense to you, you obey it and you serve with love and truth and let God be the one who gives you the influence. That's how it works, okay? So last thing I want to remind you about, resources on truthandliberty.net. You can find all kinds of stuff there that will help you as you seek to get involved in the culture and to make a difference. And uh, prayerfully consider Practical Government School for your third year choice because God is changing lives, not only through these students who graduate, but in them themselves as students in the Practical Government School. God bless you all. Thanks for everything. Thanks for coming today.